So Tom, how on earth did you come across this? How did you find out about this story, which is absolutely incredible? I'd have called it the incredible. How did that come about, Tom? How I came upon it was in 1998, I was promoted to Deputy Chief Constable, Lothian Boris Police, and I moved into a new office at Fetis. And the DCCs, the Deputy Chiefs, as you know, and police forces are the people who look after all the confidential stuff, all the complaints, all the discipline, all of that stuff. It's the DCCs are the kind of the people who look after all of that. And so in every Deputy Chief Constable's office up and down the land, there's a large locked cupboard in which all the secrets are stored. And so when you take over that job, you get handed the keys to this. It was a big, in our case, it was a big locked cabinet with a huge external locking bar and two big padlocks on it. And I couldn't wait to open it up and at last to reveal the truth of all the secrets that I'd heard so much about and I'd lived with in all my time in the force. At last I would know the inside story. Good evening, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. Great very to well. see you Thank again. You and Tom, I've been really looking forward to this. I've been reading up a wee bit about this subject tonight that we're going to do. We've called it The Expendables. An intriguing name, and it'll become apparent as we chat uh, about, about why it's called that. And it's a strange one because, in one hand, it can be seen as a kind of dad's army kind of comic strip, some of the old commando books and things like that from back in the day, where it was all taking the mickey and, and looking at the Nazis as if they were inept in every way. And it can be seen like that. On the other hand, it can be seen as very serious times for this country when at, that, at the time of this, we were in serious danger of being invaded. That was around the corner. And I, think, I don't think we were favourites at that point either. So, Tom, how on earth did you come across this? How did you find out about this story, which is absolutely incredible? I'd have called it the Incredibles. How did that come about, Tom? This story is actually one chapter in a, a new book I'm writing, which hopefully will be out in the spring. And I've called it Sex, Spies and Bloody Murder because it's a collection of stories, very strange stories about remarkable people at remarkable times. And this is no exception because, as you say, this is stranger than fiction. How I came upon it was in 1998, I was promoted to Deputy Chief Constable Lothian Boris Police and I moved into a new office at FETIS. And the DCCs, the Deputy Chiefs, as you know, and police forces are the people who look after all the confidential stuff, all the complaints, all the discipline, all of that stuff. It's the DCCs are the kind of the people who look after all of that. And so in every deputy chief constable's office up and down the land, there's a large locked cupboard in which all the secrets are stored and in which is recorded the names of all the malcontents. Now, Simon, I'm not suggesting for a minute that... <laughs> so that's where it is. Damn. <laughs> I was looking in the wrong place. That's where it is. And so when you take over that job, you get handed the keys to this. It was a big, in our case, it was a big locked cabinet with a huge external locking bar and two big padlocks on it. And I couldn't wait to open it up and at last to reveal the truth of all the secrets that I'd heard so much about and I'd lived with in all my time in the force, at last I would know the inside story. Can so I just make an observation here that you mentioned getting promoted to Deputy Chief Constable? 
almost as much as I mentioned yeah. meeting Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, <laughs> did you meet Paul McCartney? Well, now that you mention it, so. <laughs> oh, dear. No, anyway, I inherited this office, and I couldn't wait to open up the safe to read about all the secrets of the force. And, of course, it was a huge disappointment, a big anticlimax, because there were no, it was all, it's the old business of, is it cock up a conspiracy? Well, in the case, it was usually the former, not the latter. But in the bottom of the cupboard was an old brown envelope, a sort of a heavy brown envelope. And in the brown envelope was a knife, what they call a gravity knife. The blade is within the body of the knife, the handle of the knife. But it's not a flick knife. It's not spring-loaded. So you sort of press a button and you flick out the knife with gravity. And clearly, a very high-quality knife. It's a German knife, Solingen steel, the very finest of steel, very high-quality knife. And written on the envelope was just simply the name Volti, W-A-L-T-I, 1940. Walty, 1940. I was intrigued by this. What is, what is this? And why is it here? And what's the story? Was there no paperwork or markings on the Nothing. envelope or anything? Just the name, handwritten, Walty, 1940. And so I start to make inquiries as to who was Walty and what was the story about this knife in 1940. And I fairly quickly discovered that This envelope and the knife was part of a lot of stuff that was handed in by the widow of Willie Merrilees. Now, Merrilees is a very interesting character. One of the best-known police officers, probably the best-known police officer in Scotland in the 1950s and 1960s, Merrilees had been a a detective in Edinburgh in his early years, and it ended up as the... uh, Chief Constable of Lothians and Peebles Constabulary, where he had served until he was way over 70 years of age. And when he had died, a whole lot of stuff had been found in his house by his widow and been handed in to the police headquarters. And amongst this was this knife. And along with the knife had come a two-way radio, a pistol, a Walther pistol, small Walther pistol, which had been properly deactivated, and various documents. And all the rest of the things had been handed up to Edinburgh Castle to the military museum, but the knife had been kept for whatever reasons I don't know. The knife had been kept. So I then started to find out who Walty was. And I find that Walty was one of three German spies that were arrested in Scotland in late 1940. And I was intrigued by German spies in Scotland in 1940. And I started to uncover the story of these three individuals who had ended up in Scotland, why they were here, who they were, what the background was, and what fate eventually befell them. And that's the stories. And it's called The Expendables because, as you'll hear, these people were terribly ill-equipped to do the job they were sent to do and were more or less sent in like lambs to the slaughter. So it was a kind of scattergun approach by the Nazis, just volume of numbers, send enough of them and some of them might get through kind of thing. Let's backtrack a wee bit then, Tom, to to the bigger picture, if you like, in 1940, 1941, because it's, a lot of it's still secret, of course, but with the 100-year rule, a lot of it won't be released for another 20-odd years. So let's have a look at the environment then, wartime Britain, the early years of the war, when Germany had us targeted 
for invasion. No question about that whatsoever. And there's this under-the-radar war going on, kind of cold war going on between the countries to try and infiltrate, to try and learn secrets, to try and undermine each other. And that, of course, would be MI5 and MI6 on our behalf. And the Nazis had their own forces. So what was going on then? What is that environment? We'd been brought up to believe in our generation, the post-war generation, that the Germans had the best tanks and the best airplanes. They had the best battleships and their soldiers were much more efficient than ours and all of that stuff. And to a certain extent, that's true. But the one thing that they did not have that was anything like a match for us was our intelligence service. And the intelligence war, of course, was always fought in secret behind closed doors, but it was hugely important. And it's interesting the reason why the Germans were so badly placed. And it comes back actually to our favourite topic, crime. And the story really starts long before 1940. In the 1920s, when the Nazis were rising, they had amongst their supporters groups of people who were basically thugs. There were stormtrooper enforcers who would attack people and cause trouble, who would attack the Jewish shops and Jewish people, who would attack enemies, so-called enemies of the right, so trade unionists. and Anybody who opposed them would be physically attacked by these groups of stormtroopers who were all under the command of a British man called Ernst Röhm. And if you look at pictures of Ernst Röhm, you would recognise the type as a kind of guy that you've yeah. dealt with as a police officer, just a big, tough guy, not much upstairs, but extremely violent. Now, Ernst Röhm, of course, eventually in the 1930s, once the Nazis had actually risen to power, he became too much of a, a mischief and he eventually was arrested and summarily executed. But that whole ethos of these thugs that worked for the early Nazi party prevailed. And of course, as well as being thugs and attacking people and all that, they were yeah. also criminals because they were hiving off money. They were running protection rackets. They were extorting cash from people. It was a sort of criminal group dressed up as a political activists. And of course, by the time the 1930s came and the Nazi party became legitimate, and they took power in 1933, these people were still on board. And these people had gained positions of power within the Gestapo, within the brown shirts. And so they had gained a sort of a legitimacy and positions of trust and power, but they were yeah. still criminals. A lot of them, from the 1930s, the word went out that deep undercover agents had to be put in place in Britain, in France, in all the countries which Adolf Hitler knew very well that he would eventually have to subjugate. So these deep cover agents were supposed to be put in place. Now, you know, Simon, because you've done a little bit of this work, just how much training and the real sort of extent of um, expense and all the rest of it is to put someone in properly into deep cover. It is not something you do summarily, but of course, it's also expensive. And a lot of the money was hived off into their back pockets and laundered through Portugal, believe it or not. Portugal was one of the, the favourite places for, for money laundering during that period of time. And so instead of putting in properly trained, properly equipped deep cover agents, they didn't. And in Britain, 
and in most other places, intelligence was gathered by groups of people who lived in and around London and who went to cocktail parties mixed with politicians and just sent back basically gossip and tittle-tattle. And that was all very well until 1940. And here's where it all starts to go wrong. The leader of the Abwehr, the German military intelligence, was a man called Admiral Canaris. And Canaris, it's interesting when you look at pictures of Canaris, he's, a, he's an old school First World War Imperial German Navy Admiral. And he's there and he's Victorian high class. He never, he never wore modern uniforms. He always wore the old threadbare tunics. And he was one of the, sort of the aristocracy. But he was also a chancer who himself was laundering money eh, through Portugal. But he got away with it because he was one of the original old school, worked in naval intelligence during the First World War. And so the German high command took his word for the fact that he had this vast network of properly trained deep penetration agents in all the countries which Germany would have to fight. And of course, he didn't. What he had was he had groups of people who went to cocktail parties and picked up tittle-tattle, some of it true and some of it not so true, and fed it back. So the whole thing was a sham. The intelligence side was a sham as they approached 1940. They thought they had good intelligence systems, but they didn't. And all the money, or much of the money that was meant to pay for that, had been scammed off and was lining the pockets of various people who worked in the intelligence system. It's a very familiar yeah. crime story, actually, yeah. Simon. And, and as it transpires, because it was the kind of people you're talking about, Neds, you and I would have called them back in the day. It's probably not the correct term now. But criminals, career criminals. And that's a mindset that wouldn't allow them the wherewithal to work together because they all tell each other lies all the time. Everything's built on a, a very fluid foundation when you deal with that kind of people. So I can imagine that it had no structure to it. Nobody can trust each other. And in the intelligence world, that's the key word, doesn't it? And the one thing you mentioned there was going under deep cover. It takes so much planning. It takes so much noose. It takes so much subtlety. It's never a short-term thing to go under deep cover like that, in a foreign country especially. And uh, they had none of that, obviously, thankfully, because that undermined their whole intelligence operation right from the outset, didn't it? Absolutely. And, of course, it all comes to a head in 1940. The original plan was that Germany would take, that 1940 would be the year where France would be brought under control. The Battle of France, the German invasion of France, was planned to last all of 1940. And the invasion of the UK, it would be for 1941. But of course, as we now know, actually, the Blitzkrieg managed to defeat France in weeks, mm. not months. And so by the summer of 1940, it's very apparent that France is going to fall and that the invasion of Britain is brought forward. But of course, this puts Canaris and the Abwehr in big problems because he gets a phone call from the high command saying, you see all these agents you've got? In, in England, the ones who have been paying for all these years, we now need them to step up because we're six months ahead of ourselves. We're going to be invading Britain through the South Coast somewhere in late 1940. So we need intelligence about naval dispositions, airfields, what signs of kind of fighters uh, people have got. We need people to carry out sabotage. We need all this stuff. And we need your deep cover agents that we've paid all the money for 
now to step up. And of course, yeah. that's a bit of a problem for Canaris because he knows that he's actually got nothing in Britain. And in fact, up until quite recently, up until quite lately, in 1940, 1941, German pilots are actually using school atlases to navigate around the UK because they do not have up-to-date information. So Canaris said, and of course, the price of failure in Nazi high command is pretty yeah. drastic. You don't just get redeployed to another job or return to uniform, <laughs> Simon. It's a bit more drastic than that. So it's time for a new approach. So Canaris decides that he's going to embark on what they call the Invasion Spies Program. And that is exactly as you described earlier, as a shotgun approach, where you do not have well-trained, equipped, deep penetration agents, but you have dozens of very poorly trained, very poorly equipped people, and you shove them in, hoping that one or two will get through. Okay, And you're perfectly prepared to have a 98% attrition rate for that one or two. And that allows Canaris to go to the high command and say, yes, we've put 100 agents over the channel, oh, blah, 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 and try and blind the high command by numbers. That scattergun approach is very well known in police circles, of course. And I remember the very first time that I came across it. I was only weeks in the job, and somebody tried to run me down, Tom, in their car on a Friday night or a Saturday night in Campbelltown. And it ended up in the high court. But afterwards, we were back at the police station and the traffic cop that was with me was filling out the CR for it and we were doing it together. And it started off with attempt murder of a police officer. And then there would have been probably an assault of a police officer. And then the driving offence, a section two probably, as we chased them all over South Argyle, all over Kintyre. And then there was the no insurance and no tax for the vehicle. I think the vehicle was stolen, maybe from a relative, a 175 or whatever. And it ended up at the end of this big long list of charges that he had a faulty windscreen wiper. <laughs> so it went from attempt murder to a faulty windscreen wiper. And I said to the traffic cop, is, is that really appropriate? <laughs> and he said, Simon... You throw enough shit and some of it will stick, son. Well, that's right, but of course that was a favourite for plea bargaining. Yeah. You charge someone with 10 charges yeah. and they plead to two or three. But if you only charge them with two or three, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so yeah, there was a reason, that sounds an extreme <laughs> version of it, but there was a very good practical reason for that. So where do you get these men? Knowing that there's going to be an attrition rate of 98% or whatever, the last thing you want to do is send across good Germans so you've got to find someone else. What's not touched upon often when we look about the history of the Second World War is what happened to the people who were in the prison system in France and Belgium and Holland when the Germans overran the prisons. Because these people were in prison, serving sentences for crimes, or a whole range of crimes, when all of a sudden the prison gets taken over by the Gestapo. And the people who are in prison are in a hopeless situation of vulnerability. Because, of course, if they're enemies of the state, if they're seen to be trade unionists or communists or, or homosexuals or anything like that, then, they're, yeah. you know, they're straight to the wall or sent to one of the new concentration camps. But also, it was seen to be a lucrative recruiting point for invasion spies. And they went for fraudsters. And you and I will understand the reason for this, they were very keen to recruit people who had convictions for fraud. 
because they thought that fraudsters would stand the best chance of passing muster or managed to convince people of who they were. Part of a good fraudster is the ability to yeah. deceive people. Yeah. Good skill set. So they would check their CVs. <laughs> but they had a very captive audience, didn't they? They had a lot of volunteers, I would suggest, from the prisons. The truth of the matter was, it was Hobson's choice. You can imagine yourself sitting in a French prison, doing your three or four years for fraud, and a knock comes on the door, and there's a guy there making you an offer you couldn't yeah. refuse. Because there was no recourse to the justice system. There was the justice system was the was a luger pistol, and so you didn't have much choice really. And a lot of the invasion spies who were sent to Britain, and they were sent in the dozens, were actually people who were out of the prison system, and very few of them were actually German. They were mainly French, Swiss, or, and in quite a few occasions, Simon. We never actually found out yeah. who they were, not really. They all had various pseudonyms, uh, and it was very difficult, even at the end of the war, even after they'd been arrested, uh, to find out who they were. So the invasion spy system starts in 1940, and between 1940 and 1941, nearly 100 people were sent over, either individually or in groups, and some of them were landed by boat, you know, rubber dinghy in the south coast. Some of them were parachuted in. Many of them met a terrible end. They were parachuted into the wrong places and landed in deep water and drowned. Some of them immediately they hit the shore, gave themselves up because they were hoping others were so obvious that they were more or less arrested on the beach that they landed on because they were so poorly equipped. Sorry, Tom, did we have intelligence about this at the time? I know that we're historic now. We can see from historic records what was going on. Did we know about this at the time? Were our intelligence services aware yeah. of it? We had a very well-placed agent who passed information about many of these people, not all of them, but many of these people as they were landing. And that's why our intelligence services were able to more or less to meet them on a beach. And when they were arrested, if they were arrested in a quiet way, which avoided publicity, then of course, the next thing that happened yes. is they were turned into double agents. Now, we have spoken before about the role of Percy Sillito, who was the chief constable of Glasgow between 1931 and 1944, and was a key figure in the intelligence war. And you're absolutely right. We won't know the full extent of Percy Sillito's activities until 100 years. So it'll be, 20, it'll be 2044 until we really find out what exactly role he played. But the double cross system was hugely successful. Because what happened was these people landed, they were picked up, they were interviewed, they were given the same choice, yeah. come and work for us, or you're straight in under the, the Treason Act and you may well be executed. And Some of them, we'll come to this later, but some of them were executed. But a lot of them were turned into double agents and fed back duff information to the Germans. Had we infiltrated the German side at this point, Tom? Do we know that? They had broken some of the codes. And because we were ahead of the game, and we got an awful lot of help from Polish expatriates because the Poles were extremely good cryptographers and code breakers. So we were much better placed than the Germans were, probably not as well placed as we'd yeah. like to have been, but we were, and of course they kept changing the codes and changing systems, but we were a lot better placed than Germans were. And so many of these agents were turned into double agents, feeding back false information throughout the yeah. war. And of course the Germans, it must have been a terrible situation for them too, because these agents had landed, 
They, some of them just disappeared off the face of the earth, no idea what happened to them, and others were sending back information which was very hard for the Germans to verify was accurate or not. So they were getting a mixture of truthful information, some that was false, some that was out of date, some that was slightly misleading, some that was terribly misleading. And people like Ian Fleming, the James Bond author, the famous James Bond author, Ian Fleming, that's what he did. He spent most of his years, most of his war years, concocting false stories to feed into the double-cross system. And they actually had a committee called the Double X Committee that used to meet regularly once a week to come up with false lines and false stories to put through the double-cross system so as to deceive and confuse the Germans. Because that must have needed a huge degree of coordination to do that, because you just don't do it randomly. You want these false stories to corroborate each other, to back each other up, all to give a sense of credibility when it reaches the ears that you want it to reach on the other side. And I can imagine Silito, because he was brought down to the South Coast at that time, wasn't he? Specifically ordered down there. And that was his forte, infiltration, misinformation, intelligence. That was what he had been brought up on. I think that's absolutely right. I think in 2044, we will find out the true extent of what he did. And you're absolutely right. I think he had his hand in it when he was the chief constable at Glasgow too. Looking how he conducted himself in terms of bringing the gangs down and his work in South Africa, which will be covered in another uh, podcast which we've done, you see his fingerprints all over the double-cross system. Tom, you mentioned your new book. I'm saying your new book. It's not out yet. Tell us a wee bit about that and how this fits in with it, the Expendables, before we go on and look at the specific case that we're going to look at in the story. The new book is really a collection of stories which I have researched and written and which interests me, and there are about a variety of things. Some famous criminals. I've tried very hard to stay away from violent criminals because I think we speak too much about violent criminals, and sometimes we have to, and we've done it in this podcast too, but uh, I think there are more interesting people. So I speak about some interesting and clever criminals, and I speak about the Expendables, this case, and I actually visit and try and bring back into the light uh, some amazing characters that I've discovered. And I talk a lot about the sex industry, how it influences the whole of crime and crime patterns, and how we have perhaps viewed the sex industry traditionally through a very false lens. So it's a collection of stories, which I hope people will find interesting. And as I say, it's almost done. My plan is that it's going to be published in the spring of next year. And his name again, Tom? Selected stories from Scotland's underbelly. And the subtitle is going to be Sex, Spies and Bloody Murder. Tom, before we go on to our expendables here and this fascinating story, and go back to the knife that you found in this cupboard at police headquarters, Tell us a bit about the environment in the UK at that time. Because I mentioned Dad's Army at the start of this podcast, and it's not far from that, is it? The Home Guard, etc. Were we on the lookout for these people all over the country? Was it well known that Germany were trying to send people to infiltrate our society here? Yes, it was from mid-1940, particularly on the South Coast. Everybody was on high alert. And and that Dad's Army, which is a very funny thing, but the truth about Dad's Army, the programme is, there's just a, there's an element of truth in it. Yeah. All the best comedy has an element of truth in it. And, the, you know, there was high alert on the South Coast. And that's the reason why, in the case we're about to talk about, or we're talking about now, 
they actually decided to land the group of spies in Scotland because they thought that there'd be a lot less scrutiny in Scotland than there was in England. So, Tom, we mentioned Dad's Army at the start of this episode, and, and that's not as... Well, what, what was Dad's Army, the home guard for the UK? That was the environment that we had here in, in the UK at that time. The home guard, Dad's Army is a famous uh, reference to it because many of the home guard, who were a kind of a civilian militia, many of them were ex-World War I servicemen, and there were people who were considered to be too old for military service. But in actual fact, a lot of them were people that were too young for military service yeah. too. So the Home Guard comprised people who were in their 50s, who had been soldiers in the past. Some of them were civil servants, bank managers, but they were too old for active service. And then there were 16-year-old lads as well who were too young. Or had maybe failed a medical. So you had air raid precaution, uh, ARP, ARP wardens, who went round making sure that your curtains were closed tight. You had fire watchers in all the big cities, people who at night would get up on the roofs of high buildings and watch for incendiary bombs because, of course, aerial attack was the the big threat throughout the UK. And, of course, in London during the Blitz, it was very well justified. And then you had the Home Guard, who were really about patrolling and securing the coastlines. So they were there to augment the regular army, and just to be watchful and to be a kind of a, I suppose, a last defence because the poor home guard, they were poorly equipped in terms of weapons because they didn't have the most modern of weapons right up through the war. They would have been the last defence. But it was a clever thing, really, because what it did was it gave everybody in the population a role to play and a sense of belonging. That This was not, that the threatened invasion was not, something to be left to the professionals and the army and the navy and the air force it was actually something that affected you and you had a part to play whether it was growing vegetables whether it was working on a farm or whether it was putting on your uniform and going out to do drill and doing patrols at night and all the rest of it how much good did it have been if push had come to shove i don't know but i think in terms of morale And in terms of feeling part of the whole thing, I think it was a very clever device. And Tom, it's fascinating listening to you because it just shows the value on Kind Time Inc. to have someone that's been through two world wars and and all the other wars that you experienced (laughs) over over the last 120 years. It's fantastic. Thanks for doing that. It sometimes feels like that. I would sit and listen to my father speaking about it and, and my grandmother. If you'd listened to my grandmother speaking, you'd have thought she'd fought in the First World War. But of course, yeah. it impacted so heavily upon them. I mean, my grandmother lost many of her male relatives in the First World War, and it was a yeah. It defined her life. It really did. Yeah. yeah. Tom, is it true that back in the day, and this might just be a rumor, you know what what it's like, the intelligence world, that you did an audition for Dad's Army alongside Captain Mannering. What was the role that you were pigeonholed for when you got your your rehearsal? I Simon, it was that's a, a touchy subject. I was overlooked, <laughs> clearly overlooked for the role. Dad's army, seriously, was it's funny because it was not thought when it was made, a television show, it was not thought to have been very popular. It's turned out to be one of the most enduring and popular television programs, and it's still being shown oh, twenty-five years after it was made. Just because it written so well, and it touches, and the characters touch on people that 
uh, we all feel we've met. And of course, it was made into a, a film as well, uh, more recently. And it's the story of the Home Guard. And my old father-in-law had been in the Home Guard, and he couldn't watch Dad's Army because he said it was too truthful. <laughs> it was too realistic. <laughs> That's fascinating. My father-in-law was a farmer, and because he was a farmer, he owned a lorry. And because he owned a lorry, he was made a captain in the <laughs> Home Guard. <laughs> Tom, uh, we're thinking about Dad's Army, and you said there, uh, it's maybe 50 years old, Dad's Army. It's probably not far off that. So it was maybe a remake that you auditioned for. It was maybe the, the follow-up to it. It certainly wouldn't be the original. But I think you'd have been great. I think you'd have been fantastic, especially as that old Scotsman. I think he was the, the sergeant. I think he was the sergeant in it. I can't remember his name. You know, the sergeant was John LeMissure. You're yeah. thinking of John Laurie. Yeah. yeah. We're all doomed, doomed, yes. doomed. That's the one. <laughs> See, I knew it. Is that the audition, was it? I'll tell you what, I've, I've often paraphrased him. We're doomed. Tom, uh, next time we're going to go down this road here, this story, back to finding the knife again in the cupboard and your inquiries thereafter about the origins of this knife and the other things that were that were in the museum by this time. Uh, can you give us a wee background? You've told us that there were hundreds. Uh, we don't really know how many, of course, and it would be naive always to think that none of them got through and infiltrated into our communities. But uh, of the hundreds, you picked this story. Why this particular story? And tell us a wee bit about it just for the next episode, what we're going to cover. It was a very high-quality uh, German paratroopers knife, uh, the kind issued to uh, German paratroopers to cut through the harnesses if they landed awkwardly. And, of course, it had to have the blade inside the handle because to carry an exposed blade when you're jumping on a parachute is not a very good idea. Uh, and it was found in the possession of Werner Volte. And Werner Volte had been arrested 30th September 1940 in Waverley Station, the railway station in Edinburgh. And Werner Volte was one of a trio of German spies. Karl Drucker, who was a 35-year-old conman with Spiv, who had been recruited under duress from the prison. Werner Volte, who in his 20s and who was a, I don't know if he was simple or not, but he certainly wasn't over-endowed in the brain department. He also had been recruited nice from a, a French prison. But the third member of the trio was something altogether different. She's often been characterised as the beautiful spy. And Vera Eriksson, who was 28, was indeed a very, very beautiful woman. If you see photographs of her, and I hope there'll be a picture of her to accompany this story, she really was a film star. Standard. She was a beautiful woman. Not only was she beautiful, she was also an ex professional dancer. And she was a, a Danish Russian who'd spent a lot of time in London. She had been trained as a girl at the Bolshoi Ballet. She had danced at the Folie Bergere. And she was a striking looking young woman of 28 years old who men instantly fell in love with. And her whole story and how she ended up being landed in Britain as an invasion spy is really what we'll come to and what we'll describe in the next chapter. Brilliant, Tom. I can't wait. Can't wait to hear it. Thanks very much. Speak soon. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. 
and he gets rid of them as soon as he can, get off the plane, get off the plane, bundles them into the boat with the three bikes. <laughs> Straight away they discover, first of all, that they haven't read the timetables properly. Now, timetables are not hard to get. So, I mean, this is amateur night of the movies. They haven't read the timetables properly and the tide is actually sweeping them out to sea, not into the shore. The other thing they then realise is you actually can't paddle this boat it, with three bikes on it because the bikes are yeah. awkward and taking up too much space. And so the first thing they do is they ditch the three bikes and straight away at that very early point, still when they're out to sea in the very early hours of the 30th of September, the operation is already going wrong. Talk about fail to plan and plan to fail. This is a classic example of that. As I say, Simon, I've no doubt you've been involved in some real botch-ups operations, but this one, Simon... 